The presenting sponsor of the Audible, as always, is Trader Joe's. And Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley and around the world, discover the next great Trader Joe's products, discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, and look who's back from vacation. Our world traveler, the editor-in-chief, the boss, as he likes to refer to himself, my colleague Stuart Mandel. Stu, are you on the road still? Yeah, it's funny that you're talking about me being back from vacation, because that feels like ancient history now. I just spent four days in Atlanta for SEC Media Days, and I'm back home now. Quite a week, quite a busy week we've had, The Athletic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I feel like we have hired about 60 new new uh, writers and reporters, which is a good thing for us. I have to say, so I was at, at Big 12 Media Days in Dallas for a couple of days earlier this week. I was there last year, and quite a difference a year makes because just the presence, and, and I don't want to you know beat people over the head uh, with our brand and our our, our website, but just, it's just very different to see the impact and the reach that your that what you started i don't know 11 and a half months ago has had and how much it's grown now yeah i mean sec you know i basically spent i was there primarily to promote the site i didn't really even get a chance to do much um reporting and writing until the last day and you're right i mean it's it's cool to be part of something that's being talked about certainly in all these radio interviews everybody's oh i'm a subscriber i'm a subscriber and a subscriber since day one or you know, you hired such and such, and, and we just signed on. So here, real quick, we want to take up too much time on this, but if you've missed the news in the last, I don't know, four days, we now have, the All-American now has 26 writers, 19 team writers. Here's who the teams we now have beat writers for. I'll just rattle them off real quick. Alabama, Aaron Suttles, Auburn, Justin Ferguson, Clemson, Emily Giambalbo, who starts next month for us, Florida. Will Salmon, who had an excellent piece uh, this week, he came from covering Mississippi State, and he followed Joe Moorhead around for an entire day at SEC Media Days. Florida State, Tashawn Reed, Georgia, Seth Emerson, he's been writing for a few months now. Iowa, Scott Docterman, Michigan, Cody Stavenhagen, Michigan State, Colton Pouncey, Notre Dame, Pete Sampson. He's been covering Notre Dame since the coach was Bob Davey, believe it or not. Ari Wasserman, the dean of athletic college football beat writers for Ohio State. Our friend Jason Kersey, back to his roots covering Oklahoma. Tyson Alger, Oregon. Audrey Schneider, Penn State. David Ubbin, who is our guest this week on The Audible, covers Tennessee. We're going to talk to him about Jeremy Pruitt, but also other SEC and other Media Day news. Antonio Morales, our USC writer, Andy Bitter, Virginia Tech, and Christian Capel for Washington. So if you are a fan of one of those teams and you listen to this podcast, which means you seem to at least like me and Bruce, go to... Or one of, or one of us. Or one of us. Yeah. <laughs> and tolerate the other one. I, I, I'm aware that that, that is a thing. Uh, Theathletic.com slash CFB expansion. 40% off. $2.99 a month right now. All right. So... There was a little, you know, on media days, there's all these little mini controversies that erupt, and, and one of the ones at SEC 
was that Aaron Murray, the former Georgia quarterback and obviously very loyal to his old coach, Mark Richt, went on the radio and said that he didn't think Jeremy Pruitt has the personality to be a head coach and was citing the fact that he didn't think he was respectful enough of Mark Richt when he was the defensive coordinator and Mark Richt was the head coach. So that was... And I believe David Pollack from ESPN, another former Georgia player, also who was not the player when uh, Jeremy Pruitt was in Athens, kind of echoed some of those remarks as related to Mark Richt, too. I mean, David Pollack's a very prominent old Georgia Bulldog. Well, I think all of us who cover the sport, you know, there were always rumblings those two years that there was friction on that staff for sure. Jerry Pruitt came in and wanted to do things the Alabama way, and but he was working for a guy who'd been there for I believe 15 years and did things his way. So and very um, and and Mark Rick, you probably you know just I don't, dignified is an understatement yeah. in how he handles things. The one thing I would think, and I'm not saying Aaron Murray is right or wrong, but what my reaction was does not you know whether this is exactly verbatim does not have the temperament to be a head coach or anything like that. I've been to a lot of practices at a lot of different places over the over the around the country, and a couple of these guys, I would say, fall in the category of top fifteen head coaches in the country. And I think you'd agree with me on who these you know on these guys worth as head coaches. They are can be ornery and yell at players and yell at a staff and get after people. And I'm not sure their temperament like. Is would fall into the category that maybe they're not Mark Rick, but they've had a lot of success. And if Jeremy Pruitt has the success of some of those guys, I think Tennessee fans will gladly take it. And Seth Emerson, who covered um, covered those years at Georgia when Pruitt was there, wrote a column for us and saying, you know, the Jeremy Pruitt I was around those two years, I I might tend to agree a little bit with Aaron Murray, but that doesn't mean he hasn't matured a little bit since then or learned more and is ready for to be a head coach because frankly he said his performance at SEC media days as a first time head coach he seemed more polished frankly than Curry Smart did the first time he went to SEC media days so let's bring on David and talk about that we are pleased to be joined now by the Athletics Tennessee Vols writer David Oven who uh, I actually just spent three days with in Atlanta he Unlike me, he's a trooper. I flew back to California on Wednesday night. David stayed for the last day, and that is a whole lot of uh, four days and 14 coaches worth of cliches. Congratulations on making it to the finish line, David. I appreciate it. I mentioned to some people this week that the people who say SEC Media Days are just dead wrong. It's way too long. So <laughs> it, it was uh, it was an experience. I'll say that it's my first time at the uh, at the SEC. So it's been uh, an interesting, exhausting caffeine fueled week. So I don't think I'm feeling too bad about heading back home. David, you you've done uh, really some amazing work on new Tennessee coach Jeremy Pruitt. I, for our listeners who are not yet subscribers of the Athletic, I would encourage you to do so, especially for the kind of work and I think for even people who are very familiar with Jeremy Pruitt you will learn a lot of stuff and details about his path to Knoxville having said that so now we saw him on the big stage before we get into and I think we'll get into this in a second you know some of the little dust up with some of former Georgia players not players of his but how did you what was your takeaway with him and how he handled the big stage there and and the big podium well, I think he. I think it's true that you know when you become a head coach, there's an ability to flip a switch. You know, people talk about that 
like you talk about the NBA, you, know, you can't flip a switch when you get to the playoffs. But I think as, as a as a career assistant, it's becoming a first time head coach at you know in his mid to late forties. Uh, he did flip the switch. I think we saw a different side of him, the CEO side of him, the sort of uh, you know well presented side of him. I, I think you know it's. Uh, I think just in, in talking to people around him and seeing him talk before and interacting with him a little bit in smaller settings, it's not like he's completely changed who he is, but certainly uh, a lot more, uh, I guess, polished, you could say. Uh, but he presented himself well, and then obviously the uh, the sort of calculated quip or barb at, at Aaron Murray, uh, he handled that situation, which I think is really his first like real, I guess we can call it a controversy. I, I referred to it in my column yesterday as a controversy. It's kind of silly, but he handled it really well and scored some points with his fan base. So if we just kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture with Jeremy, you know, obviously not even close to being Tennessee's first choice last year, emerges um, from a very bizarre coaching search once Phil Fulmer took over as AD. And so since getting to Knoxville, you've been on a mission to, to learn more about this guy who frankly keeps it very, very close to the vest. You spent a week, I believe, in his hometown Without revealing the whole series, give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at what you've learned about Jeremy. Yeah, I think I went to uh, Rainsville, Alabama, and kind of just made my way around, talked to one guy, and that connected me to some other guys, it connected me to some other guys, and, and kept talking and kept talking and came home with like, I think it was like 10 or 12 hours of interviews, called a lot of people, called his, his uh, college coach, talked to a lot of people around him. And I think what you get is a, a picture of a guy who is you know, very confident, very sure of himself. And now, you know, he's getting the job that, that he has basically waited his whole life for. I think it's it's interesting you know, as you look at his, his road, he was never like a 20-year-old guy that was like, you know, I'm going to be SEC head coach. I think the dream for him was always to sort of be a college assistant coach. But then as you grow, you know, as you, as you sort of climb that ladder, it's like, well, when he's, a, a, you know, a, a, a director of player personnel or player development at, at Alabama, it's like, well, maybe he can be a position coach one day. And when you're a position coach, maybe I can be a coordinator one day. And then he gets to be a coordinator, spends what was it, eight years, something like that, as a coordinator. And then when you start doing that, it's like, well, maybe I can be a head coach. And now he gets to, to take the big chair at one of the biggest programs in, in college football. And so this challenge really intrigued him. And, and one of the things I wrote about was, yeah, like he grew up an Alabama guy. The dream for him was to play for Alabama. And now his sort of Alabama-obsessed hometown is a, a little bit conflicted because they, they love him. You know, one of his childhood friends said, you know, that I love Alabama. And those national titles meant a whole lot, but they meant a lot more, you know, with Jeremy on the staff. And now you're, you're kind of seeing the, you know, he, he loves his hometown and his hometown loves him. But it's, a, it's sort of a, a complicated picture, I would say, that that, that third Saturday in October uh, is going to be interesting in Rainsville, Alabama. David, what do you think now that you have you know a decent amount of time to get on the beat and get kind of settled in? What do you think the biggest hurdle facing him is to to you know he's going to have to have a huge amount of success not within the first two years but you know within four years just because we've seen other guys come there and they can do some positive things but right now 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 while Florida is rebuilding ten, Georgia certainly is not and. And the SEC West is still really heavy. So what is it? Is it fix the offense? Is it simply just to evaluate better? What do you think it's going to take there to, to do things that no one else has been able to do in the last dozen years? I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's, uh, it's calming down some of the dysfunction, getting everybody on the same page. Of like, this is, who, you know, this is what we want to do and what we want to accomplish. I mean, certainly 
offensively, and as part of my you know research going into speed, you know, I watched all the games from last year, and just like offensively, just totally incoherent. You know, especially for me, I've got a, a you know background in this Big Twelve where I've watched a lot of good offense. I can't tell you how many times I was watching Tennessee last year. I'm just like, what what are they doing? Like you just you can't really even tell what they're trying to do. And, and one of the things that stuck out to me is like they didn't have any confidence in Jared Garitano. They didn't trust him, which I can't blame him because you know he's a redshirt freshman that had never really played before. But then they're simultaneously asking him to make some like ridiculous throws. He's you know they're he's you know forcing balls as like a like a corner post against a cover two, trying to drop it in there, and just like those are low percentage throws. Like they just really did not put him in a position to succeed last year. So that's part of it. Get the offense on the same page. Tyson Helton. He's a guy who's got a lot to prove himself, a guy who's uh, you know coming out of his brother's shadow. He spent uh, the last couple of years with Sam Donald at, at USC. So Tyson Hilton's got a lot to prove. But then recruiting, that's where Jeremy Pruitt has really made his uh, made a name for himself, so in addition to being a, a really you know, defensive mastermind, but being a recruiter. And that's a lot of different things. That's being organized. That is... You know, having a plan and being able to to draw guys in. You know, recruiting people always make a big deal out of the scene of like, well, well can he walk into a, a living room and convince the parents that you know he was? That's really not that big of a part of recruiting. It's a lot of more of like, this is what we want to do. We want to allocate our resources in the right way, and and that's a big strength of his is sort of organizing everything and and having a, a very calculated plan for having the best recruiting class they can. And, and Tennessee. You know, they're, they're going to give him all the support they can and give him what he needs to do that. And he's obviously seen some high-level programs operate at Florida State and, and at Alabama. We'll get to Georgia in a little bit. But, yeah, I, I think that's the, the, the thing for him. Is that it's, I, I think it's about getting an influx of talent and then having an offensive sort of vision that they can actually you know do. He wants to have a, a ball-control offense that scores as well, but – Defensively, they were not that bad last year. They, they, I think they can have a functional defense, but offensively, just so many three and outs and, and just wasted possessions. Okay, guys, I have to interrupt our SEC conversation for a second with some breaking news from my inbox. Apparently, Fox Sports College football broadcasters are going to be available for one-on-one interviews during Big Ten Media Days. And one of them listed here, along with Joel Klatt, Brady Quinn, Matt Leinart, Robert Smith, and Dave Wanstead, is Bruce Feldman. So... Am I like breaking protocol here by having you on the podcast, Bruce? It sounds it sounds like I may have to request a one on one interview with you next week. You may have to, and we'll see if you get approval. It's kind of a weird situation, don't you think? I mean, on the one hand, you'll probably be writing some articles for the Athletic from there or shortly thereafter, but you're also there for Fox, and so technically, I have to go through the same protocol as all the rest of the media to be able to talk to you. Well, shouldn't you? I mean, just because you refer to yourself as the boss all the time on this platform and to the sure. others, I mean, Lord knows how you've browbeaten poor Chris Vanini and, and uh, Max Olson over the last 12 months, but I, I think you should be like the rest of everybody. No, I get it. I understand my place in the pecking order. I will contact Valerie Krebs today and let her know that I would like to talk to you about college football at some point on Monday or Tuesday while we're in Chicago. Sound good? Fair enough. All right, sorry, sorry for that diversion. Real quick, guys, let's just talk about the big news out of SEC Media Days. No, not Dan Mullen sneakers. Nick Saban asked publicly for the first time about the quarterback situation. It was actually our friend Dennis Dodd who stood up in the room and asked him. Dennis, of course, the most prepared man in the media, by far knew exactly how many days it was until the opener. I want to say it was 43 and said 
43 days from now, do you think Jalen Hurts will still be on your roster? And Nick Saban didn't just say, yeah, why not? Of course he would. He said, I have no idea. So, look, for the most part, he tried to deflect the question. Or not deflect, but downplay. You know, it's to be determined. No matter how much you guys ask me, the fact is there is no answer to this yet. But it would seem to me the first time that he even left open the possibility that maybe, hey, maybe Jalen Hurts won't be on the team at some point. I mean, it's sort of the, just the way that college football is. There's no such thing as a career backup anymore. If you're a guy that's going to play quarterback and go to Alabama, you're, there's going to be a lot of other people that want you. And if you don't, uh, if it doesn't work out there, which it looks like it might not for Jalen Hurts, then obviously the move for him and, and for just about every other quarterback who has some options is, is to leave. And, you know, there's been a lot of stories about sort of this, what college football is now, but this is about to affect uh, Alabama. You know, there's the idea of, you know, like I said, not only the career backup, but the, the waiting your turn and, and you don't get a shot until you're a junior or a senior. That doesn't really happen anymore, especially for guys at big programs or guys with a lot of uh, recruiting stars and, and highly recruited guys. That's just not how it works anymore. And, and Alabama's sort of getting a taste of, of uh, what a lot of other people deal with on a lot on a yearly basis. Yeah, Stu, I really, you know, kind of, I don't want to say I take issue with this, but I was like, the big news is, I don't think there really was much news out of this. You know, I think we're parsing his words. News with we'll air see what, Yeah. I actually <laughs> thought Greg McElroy had a good had a good point on this, which I thought was maybe the wisest perspective on this, and he tweeted it out. If I'm Jalen and I don't win the QB job, I'd stay and I'd tell Saban, if you need, want me to play and start, I'll be here. If you don't need me, Please only play me in four games so I can protect my red shirt. That way I can graduate in January, in December and transfer in January and play two years. And I think that's a very wise perspective because if he tries to transfer now, he's going to have to sit out 2018 anyway. And if he, if he just, you know, who knows? I mean, if something happens and Tua gets hurt, then he ends up playing the rest, assuming that if he were to lose the job. The other thing is, let's say he were to tr- transfer that would give him a little time to see, okay, he graduates in December. You know, if he sees, hey, Justin Herbert is leaving Oregon, I mean, he knows he knows a lot of guys on that staff at Oregon. He could be a graduate transfer and go up there. Or there's a, I'm sure there's a handful of other places that are power five places that would have vacancies. And he wouldn't, he would ha- at least have more time to figure out where is my next best move because he's obviously going to try to transfer somewhere and he's not going to want to go somewhere where there's already an entrenched starter. The four-game thing, I mean, the new redshirt rule, which Saban you know, voiced his enthusiastic support for, is throws an interesting wrinkle into this. Because, you know, once you get, if you get four games into the season and Tua has clearly taken over the job and maybe Hertz is, like, coming in and doing some wildcat or something like that, you know, at that point, some there would have to be a decision made. Well, does he want to just go ahead and play out the year, help them win a championship in that kind of supporting role? Or would he actually, he or Saban, or both say, like, hey, you know, for my sake, I need you to shut me down for the rest of the year so I can play two somewhere else. Obviously, this will be a fascinating storyline to watch, especially in August and early September. David, a lot of our listeners probably know you from your work covering the Big 12, especially the really good work you did around Texas, not just University of, but the entire state. So I was at Big 12 media days the past couple of days, and an interesting little subplot really kind of, I don't want to say blew up, but emerged right after that and that was with a few texas players most notably deshaun elliott who left early after a really big junior year for the nfl kind of popped off about the tom herman staff and you got to read between some of the lines but it didn't seem like 
he was particularly happy with how maybe people were talking about him as well as some of his other uh, former teammates who left early for the NFL. Saw Connor Williams kind of echoed it a little bit in in one of his tweets to uh, Deshaun Elliott. And then after that, you know, an unrelated matter, Drew Locke, the Mizzou quarterback, he kind of was asked about Tom Herman's put the backpack on. I don't want to say it's necessarily mocked, but it sure kind of looked like mocking his touchdown celebration in the in the bowl game. There's a lot of stuff where it was like if you're a, if you're a Texas person, you're going, I don't know what to make any of this, but it's probably not ideal unless we start to win a little more. What's your take on it, David? Yeah, not a great day for for Tom Harmon. It's never a good thing when a college kid is calling out the maturity of the head coach of one of the best uh, programs in the country. And on that note, he's he's probably correct. I you know I don't think it was the biggest deal, but it wasn't a good look for Herman. It felt a little unnecessary. And it goes back to that whole thing about punching down. It's like what you know I've never really seen a college coach you know make fun of a, a opposing player, much less the quarterback and, and future NFL player, you know, during a game. That's uh that's that's a that's a new one for me. But yeah, when you talk about the players, I think that's a more impactful thing. And I think there's no secret that a lot of the guys who Charlie Strong recruited who were on the roster last year didn't feel super welcome and were not really too broken up about leaving the program early. And then you sort of saw like guys like Connor Williams and Deshaun Elliott, their their draft stock did not really do well. Uh, after the season, and you know Connor Williams is the guy who they were talking about being a, you know, a top ten pick this time last year. You know they were really excited about him. I think when I was, I think I had him pegged as the best player in the Big Twelve, and he was hurt and hurt his knee in the USC game, missed a little bit of time, but you know he really fell off the map. But I think they certainly felt like you know Tom Herman had not really given NFL teams ringing endorsements when they asked about him, and so there's just a lot of friction there. And 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 when you 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 talk about that friction and you, you add that to you know, the, the the record last year, a disappointing first season, and then you have players publicly calling him out. It's just not a good look. It's not it's not the kind of thing that, that Tom Herman needs going into a, a really crucial second year in Austin. Yeah, I would agree. Look, our, our crew at Fox has Tom Herman's team in week one on the road at FedEx Field against Maryland. Obviously, it was a game last year that they lost. I don't think they're, you know, I, it's early in his regime. He's got a new AD, Chris Del Conte, who came from TCU. I think Tom Herman's a brilliant offensive mind. I really think he's he's a really really smart coach. I think where I agree with you. I think the thing that's probably a lo- potentially more impactful just is you got Jimbo Fisher sitting in there at College Station, and they are going they are really aggressive and they are going to go to get after it in recruiting and they're they've got a lot of momentum. And I think one of the last things you need if you're anybody in that state, but especially if you're you know Texas is to have the rumblings of some former players trying to suggest or say on social media, see, these guys won't have your back. And that's not an easy thing to combat, you know, when it comes to negative recruiting, especially if you feel like it's coming from guys who played for that staff and wore those colors. And I think the, the, the one thing that will be a remedy to that is to have a big year on the field because winning cures a lot of that stuff. I just don't know at what point, you know, if you if you go eight and four in year two, is that is that enough to show, hey, you know what, we're going in the right direction. We had some growing pains. Here we go. Is it more than that? But I, I definitely think there are more chips on the table because of all this other stuff that you kind of look at it and go, it seems like it's 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 uh, unnecessary. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think eight and four would be enough. And, and you're right. I, I think, you know, you talk about the, the winning cures all. That's part of it, but everybody remembers their experience more fondly when they win, and everybody remembers sort of the war. It's a little bit better when it's a disappointing season, and certainly at Texas, you know, they didn't have a losing season like they had they had turned under Charlie Strong. But seven and six is is not what they sort of had in mind. I mean, you know, or, or seven to five. At least they had finished up and 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 got that uh, got the bowl win. But I agree. I mean, part of that was was. I wouldn't say marred, but but uh, it was hard to to really take that as a complete positive because nobody was really sure what to make of Missouri. You had the whole backpack thing, not just not really the really big punctuation mark, and and you're also talking about the Texas Bowl as well. That's you know Tom Herman didn't come to Texas, and people were telling him we got to win the Texas Bowl. So it, the the bar for what he was really going to accomplish in that game was was always pretty low. Okay, guys. Well. I think the most newsworthy thing to come out of Media Days this week at any of these venues was caused by the lead, one of the last coaches you would expect, and that is North Carolina coach Larry Fedora, who went on a bit of a rant Wednesday about the future of football and safety that caught us all just a little puzzle. Let me just read you some of the quotes. I fear that the game will get pushed so far to one extreme that you won't recognize the game 10 years from now, Fedora said. That's what I worry about, and I do believe that if it gets to that point, that our country goes down too. Asked to elaborate on that, he said, If we go touch football, the game's definitely changed, and the game will not be as physical. The game will not be as tough as it is, you know? A few years back, I had an opportunity to ask a three-star general. I had a question for him. What is it that makes our country, our military, superior to every other military in the world? And he was like, That's easy. We're the only football-playing nation in the world. And he said, most of all, our troops have grown up, have played the game at some point in their life at some level, and the lessons that they've learned from the game is what makes us who we are. It got so controversial, guys, that he had to come back later and do another small scrum where he doubled down. And in fact, is there such a term as a CTE truther? Because that's what this is right here. I don't think it's been proven that the game of football causes CTE, but that's been put out there. We don't really know yet. Are there chances for concussions in the game of football? Yeah, we all have common sense, right? Yeah, when you have two people running into each other or multiple people running into each other, then there's a chance of concussion. But again, I'm going to say, the game is safer than it's ever been in the history of the game. It, all, it just so happens that one of the leading researchers on CTE in retired players from the NFL is in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina. The whole thing is just so bizarre. It really is. I did like... Uh, so, stepping aside from the whole military hot takery of this which <laughs> I particularly appreciated uh, I did like in our in the athletic Matt Fortuna's uh, piece on our website somebody had asked him well uh, Larry what about the uh, nations that play rugby and he was like I, I, I don't know about rugby I, I don't know about the sport to, to really know and you know it, it is what it is but I, I think uh, you know Eric Adelson of Yahoo had a good column this morning where he talked to some scientists and sort of it wasn't I wouldn't say it was a defense of him but the thing is you know he's he's latching on to this idea that okay maybe the 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 complete 100% one to one correlation of football and CTE might not be there but the problem is it's dangerous because he's saying it like well we don't even know and this is sort of the media run amok and it's like well okay but what about the fact that I believe the number right now is 98% of NFL players' brains who have been donated to science have they found CTE in those. So it's like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not just football. I mean, maybe it's not every football player, but he's sort of feeding into this, like, doubt and tapping into, 
you know, the, the sort of post-facts world that I really think is a, is a dangerous line of thinking, that, that it just flies in the face of, of so much science. And even though the experts and the scientists might not, might not be comfortable saying, yes, we know 100% that this causes it, I think certainly, you know, the evidence would suggest that, that there is a, a relatively strong correlation, even if it's not, you know, 100% without a doubt we know this. I think just the bottom line is head trauma, repeated head trauma, not good for you. I mean, imagine being the parents of Tyler Holinsky, seeing these quotes circulate yesterday. You know, there was just the great Greg Bishop article, a heartbreaking article in Sports Illustrated a few weeks ago where they revealed, you know, that he committed suicide and um, they sent it to the Mayo Clinic, I believe, to come back with the results. And they said that he had the brain, a 21-year-old kid who had the brain of a 65-year-old. Could it have been from some other completely unrelated cause technically yes but i think common sense would say it was the hits that he took in football so i just think whatever point he was trying to make here he got so far off the track and it comes off as completely irresponsible you're the head coach of 105 guys their safety is your obligation and you're at acc media days questioning the validity of the whole thing and going on this bizarre connecting the dots and saying well if 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 we eliminate the kick, he's basically saying like, oh, first we did targeting and then we eliminated the kickoff. Um, you know, now you can fair catch a kickoff. The next thing you know, like the whole country is going to go down. Uh, it was not a good look for a guy. And the only thing we were speculating at, at SEC is like, was this his attempt to get people to not ask him about his four and eight football team? I thought just what you have. And I, I thought some of the things when he came back, cause I watched Fortuna had posted the video of him speaking on it. I thought some of the points he made about whether the game is safer or not. I, I think that there is some, some points that you can make that can have merit. The problem was I thought Larry Fedora in this case proved to be a really, really inarticulate spokesman for the argument he was making just to, to a large degree for what, what Stu brought up a minute ago, which was he sound unhinged when you start talking about uh, stuff and then you go down the road of, our country's going to go under because this is indicative of a larger problem. And all of a sudden now you start looking at, you know, I looked at like the memes underneath. It was like man yells at cloud and it would just seem like, okay, this person is really, really grasping at things and kind of lost control. I, I think that's the part that really he, whatever points he was trying to make, he did not do a good job at making it. He undermined any credibility he had with some of these other, kind of really irrational, disconnected thoughts. And again, now I think what he's trying to talk about, I think it's it's a conversation that can be had. It just was clearly, I don't think Larry Fedora, when he's going from the platform he was going from, clearly was not the right person to be to be having the, making those points. And if anything, the fact that he went there, I, I know what you were saying, Stu, that he had a you know a four and eight team last year. I mean, that's the last thing he needed was to become the face of this argument. If I'm Bubba Cunningham, and I've always heard Bubba Cunningham really has a lot of respect and likes Larry Fedora, but this is the last thing he needs. If you're in North Carolina, you do not want to be known for having the head coach who was who was going on this rant. Right, and who's undermining, frankly, the work of people on his own campus. So, I don't know, I've been kind of waiting to see when the retraction slash apology slash something is coming today, but... You know, or maybe by the time people listen to this podcast, but maybe not. Maybe he's just going to go back to coaching football and making America the country that it is today. 
thanks to whatever that four-star general said. So, David, are you finally going to leave Atlanta now? We'll see. I might just stick around for a couple of weeks and hang out here till the season opener and, and sit <laughs> in the, you know, the cold ballroom and just reminisce of the the times and cliches and uh, chips on shoulders of days of yesteryear. But I might I might actually leave this afternoon, possibly. Last thing we've heard people actually like when we talk about our meals on the road. Would you say the highlight of your your you know four days, whatever it's been in Atlanta, was Superica? It would. Now listen, when we when I was told, hey, we're gonna go get some Tex-Mex in Atlanta. Coming from Texas, I was I was skeptical. My my eyebrows were were greatly raised to say the least. But uh, we went there, and it was bas- it's basically Tex-Mex with a uh, a chef influence. So I got some uh, pork belly tacos al pastor with some perfectly grilled pineapple. The pork belly was cooked well. The, the uh, I don't think it's. I don't think the sauce is pastor. I don't know what the sauce is, but it was very good. And then obviously Taylor, one of our uh, our, our our PR folks at the Athletic, was with us, and she had uh, the tompicania, the skirt steak with two cheese enchiladas and a fried egg on top. I think she probably won the the order at the table, but uh, outstanding, definitely the best meal I've had uh, in Atlanta. Bruce told us he went there twice last year. I went there twice in the last two years. Tactile. Twice yeah. in the last two years. Well, there you go. It's a little free pub, Superica. If you're interested in sponsoring the Audible, <laughs> uh, send us an email to theaudiblepod <laughs> at gmail.com. No, just kidding. We're happy to happy to talk about that. And, uh, hey, David, again, for people who either haven't subscribed yet or are subscribed but just haven't seen the articles, David is in the middle of doing a multi-part series, getting to know Jeremy Pruitt. He talked to all, went to his hometown, talked to his friends from growing up, his family members, his parents, and uh, it's really good stuff, and we've got more parts to come, so you can get that theathletic.com. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. So, as you noted at the beginning of the podcast, Bruce, it's been a couple weeks since we were both here at the same time and in a position to answer. I mean, remember, we took a week off for 4th of July, so this is actually, what, the first time in three weeks that we've had a fully staffed audible which means it's time to answer all those email questions that have been stored up and you can send them to the audible pod at gmail.com who starts i'm going to start with uh jeff in dallas Stu and bruce listening to your discussion of florida recruiting on the 627 podcast made me consider an interesting question i'm a major ou fan and there's been no national title since 2000 although OU played for another five OU's been consistently successful during this time, winning conference titles and competing in major bowls. On the flip side, a program like Florida has won two national titles in 2006 and 08, but it's been fairly bad for a while. Which situation would you prefer as a fan of a blue blood, i.e. win multiple titles and stink, or win less titles and be consistent? I mean, to me, I would definitely take the Oklahoma experience. Florida fans have been on a roller coaster. I mean, they... They had that amazing period there from 06 to 08 where, remember, Florida won two football titles during that time and two NCAA basketball titles. It felt like, I mean, there was no team you would have rather been a fan of during that time uh, than the Florida Gators. But, man, has it been a rough decade for them. Dan Mullen, in one of his talking points at SEC Media Days, was consistency and pointing out that over the last five years, Florida has had two 10-win seasons and two four-win seasons. So... No, I would much rather be in the hunt every year as Oklahoma is, even if you haven't quite ascended all the way to the mountaintop. What do you think? I would agree with that 100%. Also, I didn't realize 
played for another five national titles is a when I read that I was like, Whoa, that's a lot more than I thought. I would have guessed like three. Well, you're, he's counting the playoffs the last few years. So Yeah. You know, but reached, that's right. Yeah, that's they reached the championship enough, so. game again twice with Jason White, once with Bradford, and then they've been in the playoff twice with Baker Mayfield. So yeah, I mean and then there were a whole bunch of Big Twelve titles even when they weren't necessarily in line for the national championship. So yeah, I'd rather have that that consistency than the the roller coaster experience of Florida. Okay, Scott Henry, Fairfield, Connecticut, guys, great podcast, never miss it, yada, yada, yada. I've always wondered about preseason rankings. Do you subscribe to the opinion of ranking teams solely by their roster, coaching strength, or do you factor in the schedule and which affects teams' chances chances of finishing highly ranked, i.e. a team finishes number four but might be a less talented team than a team that finishes number nine? Basically, he's asking when you do preseason rankings – are you ranking them solely on the strength of the team, or are you actually using your preseason rankings as a prediction of how the season's going to end? By the way, I, I used to work with a Scott Henry at ESPN. I, I wonder if it's the same one. I imagine he's still in Connecticut. Anyway, I would subscribe to the latter. I do factor in everything, because I think when you look at a schedule, like, okay, how are these guys going to respond if they have a, a hard stretch three, you know, three weeks in a row? Is this a young team? Will they get banged up? Do they have depth? All those things to me go into it because at the end of the day, you know, me looking at who I think is really talented, uh, if that team ends up 22nd in the country as opposed to ninth, then, you know, what's it worth? So I, I, that's how I look at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly in the, on the other end of it. You know, when I do those ones in January and April, I'm not trying to predict anything. I'm just saying – hey, going into the season or at this point in the offseason, here's where I think the teams stand. Because think about it, and it doesn't matter now because of the playoff rankings, but back when the AP, when I was an AP voter and that was actually helping determine the national champion, you know, I, would, I remember there was one year with West Virginia with Pat White and Steve Slayton, and they were just seen as having the world's easiest schedule. And so people were ranking them first, second, third in the preseason. And I was like, well, this has now become a self-fulfilling thing. Like... But you didn't know. that team go out and beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl? I mean, it wasn't that team. It was one of the ones after that. But regardless, the point is, like, people were saying, well, we think it's going to be a really good team. And the schedule's so easy, so we're going to rank them even higher. Well, now you've given them an advantage to start on top of the advantage you think they have with the schedule. So it doesn't matter now. It's not our rankings that determine the right. um, who plays in the playoff. And I don't know. I mean... I think it's different when you're doing those ones in April versus August. I mean, in August, people are expecting you to predict who's going to make the playoffs. So, for instance, in my early rankings, I believe I had both Ohio State and Wisconsin in the top four because I think they're two of the four best teams in the country. Do I actually think both of them would make the playoff, though? Am I actually going to predict two Big Ten teams in the playoff? Probably not. So those are two different things. All right, next up, from Jonathan in Nashville. First off, love the podcast, best college football podcast out there, and love the All-American. Stuart, are we still calling what we do the All-American, by the way? Of course. Okay, just checking. You guys have talked about G5 coaches getting a shot at the next level, but never mentioned Skip Holtz. He's done a solid job at Louisiana Tech, where Derek Dooley did less and got the Tennessee job. Sonny Dykes got the Bulldogs into the top 25 with Juco heavy classes for leaving Rustin with a bear cover for Holtz. And company Holtz has built the Bulldogs with high school players and three straight freshman All-Americans. Do you think he'll get a shot at Power Five? If not, why is he quote damaged goods? 
There were substantiated rumors he interviewed at Purdue before Brom got the job, but not much, if anything, since. Is that is that your uh, read on uh, the events before Purdue hired Brom? You know, there was other guys in consideration. I think Skip Holtz is a pretty good coach. I think it's, you know, Skip Holtz is in his mid-50s now. I think it certainly didn't help him the run he had at USF. I don't think that, I don't know if that would make him damage. Because he has, he has a pretty good coach. He did a nice job at, at uh, certainly at East Carolina and, uh, and at Louisiana Tech. It was just, he went from having South, Carol, uh, South Florida kind of rolling to all of a sudden it was a complete disaster in his last couple of years there. And so I think it's a tough sell to say, hey, you know, we're going to bring him on somewhere. He's, you know, you're talking about a guy who's, like I said, now he's in his mid-50s. I'm not sure that's a that's a sexy hire to have a guy come from that league. I just that's my feeling on it. You know, I think more and more today, the, the decision on who to hire as coach is it's a, almost a, as much a marketing decision as it is a, a football decision. You know, how can we, who can we hire that will best energize the fan base? And so you're always looking for the next hot thing. And uh, if you're Texas hiring Tom Herman, who is coming off this great stint at Houston, that excites the fans certainly. Nebraska, Scott Frost, like that nothing could have gotten them more excited. I don't know if you're a program and you and you have been down on your luck and you say, all right, and the guy we're bringing in to, to fix it is, um, is Skip Holtz, who's, you know, in his most um, high-profile job at this point was at USF and he got fired. It's just not going to excite the fans. And so I think it, something that doesn't get talked about a lot, it's like the unspoken thing with college football coaching searches, is there is a bit of ageism to it, you know? Like there's a certain age, and I don't know what it is, that once you get past that is why, you know, for instance, Les Miles is probably never going to get another coaching job, even though he won a national title and played for another. Phil Fulmer thought when he got fired from Tennessee, he was going to spring right back and get another job. And clearly that didn't happen. I mean, it just reaches a certain point where, well, he's, that's not going to excite people as much as hiring the 38 year old, uh, like hiring PJ Fleck is going to excite people, even though technically Fulmer or Miles has, a lot more experience at a high level than PJ Fleck did. Sure, I, I think I think you articulated that pretty well. Next up, Joel from SC. This Thanksgiving weekend, while college football's bitterest rivalries are being hashed out, the Pac-12 will treat us to games like Cal, Colorado, and Stanford, UCLA. The Big 12 is apparently fleeing rivalry weekend as well. Thanksgiving games see Oklahoma play West Virginia, Texas, KU, K-State play Iowa State feels like we should see Stanford, Cal, and Bedlam alongside Auburn, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State. What reasons might conferences have to keep their biggest robbery games off Thanksgiving weekend, and do you think it's the right move? So two different things, I think, for each of those leagues. For the Big 12, now that they have the mm-hmm. conference championship game, which is a guaranteed rematch, they are trying to avoid having Bedlam two weekends in a row. So they moved move that earlier in the season. And by the way, they could end up with a rematch like Oklahoma, West Virginia. To me, those are the two best teams. Like Oklahoma was the media pick to win the big 12 and West Virginia is my pick to win the big 12. It's in Morgantown. I think it's on a Friday. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the game of the season in the big 12. And obviously that, I don't think that will ever be ideal. It happened once in the pac 12 Stanford played UCLA on a Saturday and then played them again in, on a Friday uh, in the championship game. That's just awkward, but so they're trying to schedule away from that as best they can. The Pac-12, they take so much flack for scheduling, and it seemed like they finally did improve it this year. But but then they're always then something like this comes up, and, and I agree. Like why 
I mean, I think the reason it's not Cal Stanford is the thing, the thing that causes a thorn in the Pac-12 scheduler's side is having to accommodate the, the Stanford and USC games against Notre Dame that they always want to be on Thanksgiving weekend, right? So that's going to keep you from having Stanford Cal that weekend. That's it's, that's going to keep, uh, you, you know, oftentimes USC UCLA is the week before USC Notre Dame. So I think that's probably what causes that. Why Cal is playing Colorado as opposed to somebody else, I have no idea. I thought Colorado-Utah for a while there was the quote-unquote rivalry game that weekend. But So there are actual reasons for why you're seeing that. I just think they're not unique. They're, they're, they're specific to each of those conferences. And finally, uh, Bruce and Stu, this is from Ben M. I enjoyed your discussion of potential 2018 Heisman Trophy candidates and was surprised that there was no mention of the leading rusher in the Big 12 last season. Justice Hill of Oklahoma State seems to only be getting better each season. Shouldn't he have a chance as well? Love him. I think he's a, a, a super running back, really, really explosive. They really have a bunch of studs behind him. I just don't think Oklahoma State is going to be good enough for him to be a real Heisman candidate. I think there's a couple of great running backs in that league with David Montgomery from Iowa State being the other one. But I think if you're going to be a running back and you're going to come, especially from a school that it's been a long time since you've had a Heisman winner or even a sniff of the Heisman, you got to really be a playoff contender. Or, and I just don't think this year, I think Oklahoma State may, may win eight or nine games, but I don't think that's going to be enough. The other question is, you know, we think of the Oklahoma State offense as an air attack, you know. I mean, they've had good running back come through there. There's no question about that. But can a running back for Oklahoma State get enough carries and put up big enough stats to win the Heisman Trophy? I don't know. In this day and age, yeah. Yeah, maybe this year with uncertainty a little bit at the quarterback position, they will run the ball more. But, you know, ultimately that's that's not an offense that's built for a guy to carry the ball 30, 35 times in a game. Yeah, I mean, and again, you're looking at Bryce Love, who people know that name. He's going to be on a really explosive offense. He'll put up big numbers. Jonathan Taylor at Wisconsin, he's behind the best offensive line in the country. I think he's a guy who has a real chance to make a run at it. I'm not sure I would put Justice Hill quite in that category. I mean, as, as good as he is. And also, like I said, I know they have a good stable of backs behind him who is probably going to get some work as well. Last up, Justin yes. in Iowa. As a Big Ten fan, I always hear about the great recruiting in the South and how SEC schools have a geographic advantage due to the recruiting in their own backyards. If you were a head coach or AD, what would you? What would a long-term plan you would enact at a school like Iowa or Minnesota to try and counteract this? How do you stay competitive as future NFL kids are willing to be backups at Georgia and Alabama instead of coming to the Midwest and starting early on? So I don't have a ready-made answer for this, but I this is gonna this is an excuse for me to bring up something that I also had a dinner time conversation with about at some point this week. You know, given the you know Paul Johnson has had his great years at Georgia Tech, given what we're seeing right now with Jeff Monken at Army, with Willie Fritz at Tulane, with Scott Satterfield, like it seems to me the time is right for and obviously Kenny Amatololo. The time is right for some more, for a little bit of an option renaissance. Like, when, if and when the day comes that Kirk Ferentz is ever not the coach at Iowa, why not hire one of those guys and, and become like an old school wishbone team where you don't necessarily need the uh, a whole bunch of kids who run a 4-3-4-40? That's a tough sell for everybody else. It's tough to sell tickets to it. 
I don't know. I think that's I think that's a really tough sell. It is. That's why I, that's a hundred percent why you haven't seen more schools do that. You know, I think for all the success Georgia Tech has had, they've gone to Orange Bowls, they've played for ACC championships. It, they've never. I don't. You know, you don't get the sense that that city is energized by watching the triple option. So, but if it was going to work somewhere, like what about in the Midwest in the snow in November and December? running the, the, the fullback, the belly dive. Like, you don't think that would be um, something people would rally around? I think it's going to be a newer version of it, a what Scott Frost does, which is a a different kind of run game, but it's a, it's a run-heavy physical team, and I think that's what you see. Look, I mean, Wisconsin runs the heck out of the ball, but and they seem to have the model down. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think Wisconsin now – because of their added visibility they're getting, I think they're able to get into homes and fend off schools who are coming after guys who are, you know, really touted recruits now. So I think to me, that's the model that, you know, if you're PJ Fleck at Minnesota, you can still go down and try to recruit South Florida. He had success recruiting speed out of South Florida when he was at Western Michigan. And and so I, I think that to me makes more sense. Plus, it's not like you can all of a sudden. I mean, it's on the ads to go out and say, "Hey, I'm going to hire Kenny Amatololo." Right. That many guys who are versed in that well enough to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think you know you can always go and and you got to at least get some talent go down to Florida, not just Florida, the Southeast in general, and get some of those guys. But ultimately, the core of the program is going to be the backyard kids, and that means having a kind of a blue collar identity. And I think Wisconsin has mastered that and they are now at a point as a program where you know what their identity is going to be and it is going to be based heavily on kids in that area but they go and they get receivers from florida and they bring speed onto that team as well so that would be my that would if i were the ad that would be my plan find somebody who has a very clear concept of what the identity should be for iowa or minnesota football all right all right so we're halfway through media days weeks right we have ACC still going on as we speak. Next week, you and I will be in Chicago, and then you're also going to Pac-12 as well. That is correct. Which is now just Pac-12 Media Day. It they, is. They have shortened that to a one-day event. It is. I mean, there's a little more that goes into it. There's something else. It's not just Wednesday. There's some event on Tuesday as well. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. It's great. It's great to be back in settings where people are talking about college football. It means that the season. We'll be here very soon. And as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And hey, if you haven't yet given the Audible a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, what are you waiting for? See you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. We'll talk about it for you.